morning, Bethel. Our scripture reading for this morning is found on page 491. It's Psalm 80. So if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in the pew in front of you, the, the black book there. Um, and you can find Psalm 80 on page 491. And I'm going to ask you to, to join me in standing in honor of God's, God's word as we read together. So Psalm 80, I'll read the whole psalm. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned above the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burnt it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. But let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life, and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. This is God's word. You may be seated. As we pray, I want to just remind you, um, in the month of November, um, I mentioned this in past weeks, that we're participating this month in the 50 Churches, 50 Children campaign um, led by Mid-Atlantic Orphan Care Coalition. So we're highlighting the story of one child each week. We're praying for that child and praying that God will raise up families in our church as well as in the other participating churches um, to meet the needs of these children through adoption and foster care. Um, Gabrielle, I don't know if it's working or not, may not be working. I just got the uh, (coughs) signal. Sorry about that. Um, So Gabrielle is our child this week. There's a copy of her um, story in the bulletin there. So you can pray for her this week as well. Um, So we're going to pray for her. Um, If you notice in the little description there, abandonment, abuse, neglect, multiple homes, And she's got two younger siblings as well that she would like to be placed with. So lots of needs there um, and good reason to pray for Gabrielle this morning. We're also going to pray for Don and Sue Marshall, our missionaries in France. So would you please pray with me? Oh God, we thank you that you are 
a good shepherd that with you as our shepherd we shall not want. And yet we are prone to wander. And so we thank you that you are also a shepherd who pursues stray sheep to bring them home, to bring them back into the fold, to protect them. And we thank you that you sent your son as the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep, that we could be in your fold, under your care. And so, Lord, I pray that we would have attentive ears to listen for your voice and to follow this morning. We need to hear from you. We need you to give us ears to hear and eyes to see spiritually, eyes of faith, to see reality from your perspective, to see your greatness and goodness, to see our great need and to see the great mercy and grace that you've supplied to us through Jesus, through his life and death and resurrection. And I pray that we would respond in faith, following him, abiding in him, so that we would bear much fruit. Lord, we pray for this little lamb, for Gabrielle. Our heart breaks to hear of the brief description that's written here, and we can only imagine her being 13 years old and the kinds of abandonment and abuse and neglect that she has experienced in her short life. And we pray, Father, that you would please provide a home for her. We pray that you'd provide a home for her and her two siblings together. Lord, we pray that you would be her shepherd and that you would heal her hurts and that she would run to you as her refuge and her fortress. Lord, please don't let her run to the the other kinds of refuges and fortresses that never will protect her and satisfy her soul and bring deep healing. I pray that she would run to you. So Lord, would you seek that little lamb and draw her in and protect her and her siblings as well. And Lord, raise up families, parents that would be shepherd-like, shepherding in the same way that you do, extending your shepherding care to care for this little girl and her siblings and many others that are in great need in this state. Lord, we thank you for the ministry of Don and Sue Marshall in France. Uh, We thank you, Lord, for the way that they extend your hands and feet in that area, the way that they love the gospel and love to tell people about Jesus and give people your word that is a light, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path in this dark world. And so, Lord, we praise you for how just recently they've been able to give your word to um, young people who have never held your word in their hands. Um, and others as well. We thank you for how um, they are reaching into some new cities with your word, some dark places that need the light of the gospel. And we pray for St. Menehud that you would um, shine your light in there and dispel the darkness and uh, plant a strong, bright uh, gospel light of a church in that community and use Don and Sue in that way. Lord, we also join with them in, in bearing the burden, um, the care for their precious little grandson, Ethan, 
um, with the special needs that he has and the need for this lift, um, which is costly. Lord, we pray that you would continue to bring in the funds for that lift and care for Ethan's needs. And we pray most of all that Ethan would be just a beautiful, bright light um, in his little world around him, that he would shine with your light. Um, So oftentimes, Lord, you love to use the weak to display your strength, and we pray that you would do that through Ethan's life. We thank you for him. So Lord, as we turn to study your word now in Isaiah, we pray that you, the the great farmer, you, the, the one who loves your word to be sown into hearts generously, indiscriminately, would you please protect us from the evil one who would love to steal the seed of the word? Would you guard us from the worries and cares of this world that, that have the tendency to choke out the growth of your word in us? We pray that you guard us from the heat of trials, or at least from reacting to that by just throwing up our hands and running from you. Um, I pray, Lord, that, that we would keep our roots down in the river and that, that uh, you would water our souls and that we would be like trees planted by streams of living water so that we would bear fruit um, even when the, the hot winds of trial and suffering come. So don't let us be barren. Don't let us be dry and fruitless. Make us fruitful and prune us this morning by means of your word. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Um, So I have a friend. I have a friend who is really hardworking um, and really generous. Um, I may have told you about him before. Uh, He's got this great entrepreneurial spirit, but in a very down-to-earth, kind of non-overinflated way. Um, He started a company a while back, and from the get-go, there were some things he really wanted to get right. He wanted to pay his employees well. He knew how poor compensation um, can lead to bad morale, low productivity, right? Many of you probably know those dynamics firsthand. He's one of those who would always prefer to take the hit personally um, so that he could continue to care well for his employees. He's not one who who would be comfortable riding comfortably on the backs of others. Okay, so anyway, he started this company. Um, He really wanted to create a healthy, positive work environment. He wanted gratefulness to characterize the office culture, not complaining and negativity that so oftentimes characterizes it. Um, He wanted willingness to characterize the work ethic, not compulsion or threats or, or coercion. He wanted passion for and belief in their products and services to drive an energetic and buoyant work ethic. Okay, he hated the minimalistic work ethic, but he wanted love and passion to drive a maximalist work ethic, not some slave driver atmosphere or, you know, some cutthroat corporate um, pressure cooker. So he wanted his people to believe in what they were doing so that they wanted to work hard to build something great. Um, He wanted his people to have a good work-life balance, to care well for, be engaged with their families, their friends. He didn't want the employees to begrudge the hard work because of his insensitivity to other priorities. Um, He wanted respect and honor to characterize the interpersonal relations inside the company, you know, peer-to-peer, top-down, bottom-up, all of it, 
okay, with clients, suppliers. Um, he wanted not to be driven by the bottom line, but genuinely driven by the good of their goods and the good of their services in order to truly benefit their customers, okay? He didn't want to use that talk as a selling point, leveraging service for others for selfish purposes, okay? He's a, he's a really genuine, authentic guy. You definitely know that if you ever met him. Um, so he wanted the use, again, important things, use of expense accounts to be handled with willing, internally driven wisdom, not some we're watching you nitpickiness, wanted to provide reasonable enjoyment and freedom without fostering a sense of entitlement. Um, he just thought through it all. He was committed to never compromising quality for the sake of protecting the profit margin. We could go on, you get the idea. So he started this company. He was already a really, really wealthy man, so he plowed a lot of his own capital into getting started. He sacrificed a ton personally, more than anyone in the company ever knew. He wasn't the type of leader that you know, always would put that on display. You know, he didn't need people to see his sacrifices, but this, co- this startup cost him dearly. When he had to pay a high price, he didn't make others pay for it. Okay? He believed in his vision. He was joyfully willing to sacrifice to make things happen. He stuck to his principles. He really cared well for his employees. He led his team really well, and things really grew. But he didn't just wind things up and then you know, go on his yacht. <laughs> He didn't start backing away once more senior leadership was established. He never exasperated people with kind of a nitpicky micromanagement, but he was always involved. And he was always accessible, amazingly accessible, okay? Not just in some token or, you know, cameo political sort of way. He really, really cared about everyone in his company. It's really amazing. And he cared about all of his employees as persons, you know, everything that concerned them, not just their work life or productivity, okay? So he's invested, he invested, he invested in his people. He cared about the quality of the products and services. He never cut corners. You, you might be getting skeptical right, right about now that this person actually exists. I assure you that he does. I know I might be biased, but he is really by far the best leader I've ever seen or heard of. So let me tell you what his company looks like now. Now, this description is not true across the board. There's still quite a few bright spots. Some sectors are still growing, some pockets actually thriving, but sadly, that doesn't negate what so much of the company has become, okay? People smile and are polite in meetings, But in the normal office interactions, grumbling and complaining seem to be just a part of every day. Anybody ever seen that? Laziness is an issue. Employees are often found doing inappropriate things on company time. People seem to begrudge any extra effort that's required. Sadly, lots of critical spirits and negativity. A sense of entitlement seems to kind of leak out around the edges. Despite excellent pay, incredible benefits, contentment seems to be more the exception than the rule or the norm. There have been multiple cases of embezzlement. Employees cut corners regularly and without a twinge of conscience. So many are totally ruled by this pragmatism. Have you seen this? Have you out there in here that says, do what works in the short run, not what's right, regardless of the consequences? 
Okay, many of his salesmen have taken his authentic commitment to the good of the customer, and they've actually played it to obtain their thinly veiled selfish ambition. So for so many, it's just a job now. Passion for, belief in the mission seems to be hard to come by. And the attitude toward my friend, the founder, the owner, his employees actually snub him with regularity. People often seem to want him to back off. They often read his very kind, appropriate involvement as, like, oppressive. He is literally the greatest leader, the greatest shepherd this world has ever known. And for so many of his people, it's like pulling teeth for them to meet up with him for 10 minutes a day. There, I tip my hand. So what should he do? What would you do if you were him? A whole lot of firing? Well, guess what? We'd all be out of a job. So our study has been in the book of Isaiah, and we come to chapter 5. The book of Isaiah is all about the God who saves And we see a little bit more about his character here in chapter 5. So I started with a parable. And you may not have known that it was a parable when I first started. And by the end, you did. And Isaiah started with a parable. And his first hearers did not know where he was going. But we need to consider why he started with a parable. Okay? First five chapters of Isaiah, you can turn in your Bibles now to... Isaiah chapter 5, we're going to look at the whole chapter actually this morning, Um, so turn in your Bibles there, you can find it on page uh, 569, okay, so the people of God at this time were very rebellious and wicked, this is not an encouraging picture, Um, they didn't like Isaiah the prophet telling them the truth, they thought they were just fine. And Isaiah's message in chapter 5 is not an encouraging one. He wasn't likely to gain their ear for long, okay? Because they didn't like his message. So he gets creative. He picks up his, his guitar and he sings a ballad, okay, in order to get their attention. It may have been that this was even, t- that this took place at the end of the grape harvest, which would be typically a time for celebration. And so, oh, finally, Isaiah's kind of lightening up. He's got his guitar, so they start to listen. Look at Isaiah 5.1. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones, and he planted it with choice vines and built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild, probably better rotten or rancid or stinking grapes, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield rotten grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled. He's going to remove his protection from his people. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. 
I will also command the clouds. Do you see where he tips his hand right there? Who can command the clouds? This isn't, any, this isn't just any vintner. I will command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, which would be the good fruit, right, that he's looking for, but instead, behold, bloodshed, rotten grapes. He looked for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Okay? So... Um, There's an outline in your bulletin, probably would be helpful um, to follow along that way. Um, First point, here in verses 1 to 7, uh, we take a look at this parable. Why did Isaiah start this way? You see what's happening? It's the same thing that I attempted, though my attempt is pretty poor compared to this inspired version, okay? But it's the same thing I attempted. It's also the same thing that happened when Nathan approached David Do you remember that? After David had committed adultery and had Uriah murdered, months are going by and David's not repenting. And so Nathan was a prophet of the Lord and he goes to David and what does he do? If he would have just confronted David directly, the king would have very likely, because his heart was hardened, he might have been defensive, he might have been evasive, he might have gotten angry and just, you know, to the prophet. So he told a parable. One that functioned like a spiritual drill bit. A parabolic prophetic drill bit. Slowly boring into David's soul precisely because David didn't think it had to do with him. So it fired up David's sentiments against the injustice of the man in this story. Can't believe he took that little lamb from the poor man. He's angry. He levels his judgment against that rich man who's abusive and, and, you know, just greedily grabbed this poor man's little lamb. He deserves to die. And then Nathan slips the dynamite into the hole that he's drilled. Boom! You're the man. And David's hard heart is shattered. And he owns his sin. I've sinned against the Lord. And he repents, and we read Psalm 51, which we sung earlier. Okay, that's what Isaiah is attempting here. Okay, the point of a musical parable, it was to get their attention and wake them up to the justice of God's judgment coming their way. They're just sticking their finger. Oh, no, no, you're just such a downer, Isaiah. They didn't listen to him. They didn't take his message seriously. So how do you get the attention of hard-hearted people who think they're fine? The whole point is that the Word of God should not glance off us like a bullet off of a rock. And God refuses to heal the wound lightly, to give us superficial remedies for our deep problems. The Lord does not do Band-Aids for cancer, for soul cancer. Joel Osteen, Oprah might do that. The Lord doesn't do that. God is a specialist in soul surgery. So, Do you know why we so often need this kind of prophetic ministry? Because we love to give excuses. Okay? Look back at verse 1. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. The soil wasn't the problem. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. His husbandry skills and commitment were not the problem. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. It wasn't due to inattention or vandalism. 
Look down at verse 4. What more, there, what more was there to do for my vineyard that I haven't done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield rancid grapes? I told you I was probably going to quote Ortland, the book of the month, like every week at least once. I'm sticking to it here, at least thus far. Here's what Ray Ortland says. Why? Why are we not more fruitful? Is it God's fault? We tell ourselves, if only I had more time, if only I had a better wife, a better husband, if only I were married, if only my job weren't so demanding, if only I had more money, I'd really live for the Lord. We tell ourselves, if only this, if only that. These are all excuses. At bottom, each one implies a criticism of God as if he hasn't already given us in Christ all we need to live well for him. So God will lovingly drill in past our excuses to break up our hard hearts. Jesus certainly did this over and over again, didn't he? He told lots of parables. And he usually was drilling into those who were hardened by self-righteousness and pride. Okay, do you see how loving that drilling is, even though it's meant to do some holy violence, you know, to blow things up? It's loving. This is creativity in the service of love. That's what our God is like. He does this painful drilling in order to break up our hardness so he can plant good seed and produce good, sweet fruit in our lives. Okay, he's after soft heart soil that can plant, in which he can plant the seed of the gospel and tend it and bear much fruit that will abound to his glory. But back then in Isaiah's time, they didn't listen. So Isaiah had to lament the coming judgment that they deserved. Okay, so he did it by means of six woes. Okay, you can see in your bulletin there's a lot of ink there under point number two. Um, Don't get scared. We're actually going to go through this large amount of territory fairly quickly, okay? So a woe is kind of like a a lament and and a threat or a warning wrapped into one. So you could translate it as, ah, like why? Okay? So that's what these woes are. And remember, as we go through this, this is describing the people of Isaiah's day. Okay? It may not directly describe any of us. In fact, I hope it doesn't because this is a really bad scenario. These folks are very cold and hard toward God, and they didn't even know it. Nevertheless, we should all pay attention here because... We don't want even the seeds of these noxious weeds to grow in our hearts and lives, okay? Another thing we should pay attention for as we go through this is to see how these woes reveal God's character, okay? What he loves and what he hates is revealed here. He also reveals the consequences of our sin if it's left unchecked. So let's look at what's woe-worthy. There's six of them in verses 8 to 30. First one, selfish ambition. Look at verse 8. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there's no more room, and you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant, for 10 acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield but an ephah. We don't know those measurements, but basically lots of land, little yield, okay? So again, I hope none of us are guilty of greedy land grabbing, though I'm guessing that most of us struggle 
with less blatant forms of selfish ambition, right? So you see the effects of this selfish ambition, ironically, gathering everything to yourself, isolates you and leaves you empty. There's a warning here for us. Look at woe number two, self-indulgence in verses 11 and 12. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. So what gets you up in the morning? For these folks, it was scotch whiskey. It's wine that they're passionate about. Okay, they've got great parties, but they think very little of the deeds of the Lord, and their drunkenness actually blinds their vision to the good work of God all around them. Okay, so again, you might not be the party animal, but self-indulgence left unchecked is dangerous. Okay, and that warrants a woe from the Lord. So in this section, there's six woes, and then there are four therefores, okay, just the structure of it. The therefores explain the consequences of what these people have become. So let's look at the first therefore there in verse 13. Deprivation comes. Therefore, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry and their multitude is parched with thirst. So exile was going to be their judgment. Eventually Babylon and would sack Jerusalem and carry off most of the people as slaves. Why would they be carried away like this? Why exile? For lack of knowledge. Do you remember back in chapter 1? Verse 3, the Lord said to the people of Judah, the ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel doesn't know. My people don't understand. It's like they don't even know me. So ultimately, those who are so greedy, so self-indulgent, they will be deprived and they will suffer hunger and thirst, ironically. So again, a good warning for us. Look at the second, therefore, in verses 14 to 17. Humiliation is a result. Therefore, Sheol, the grave, has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure, and the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down, her revelers and he who exults in her. So they were so greedy, devouring lands and houses. They were so indulgent, imbibing excessively, and now they're suffering hunger and thirst, and the grave is now showing its greed and appetite. The consumers will be consumed. Okay, again, good warning. Extreme version here, but seeds of that we can see in our hearts. Verse 15, man is humbled and each one is brought low. And the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. So the proud ones, humbled, brought low. In their selfish pride, their lives were filled with injustice. Stepping on the poor, not caring about about anyone but themselves. Okay, remember verse 7? Look back there. In the vineyard of the Lord of hosts, he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. So the Lord's going to bring them low so that he and his loving justice and righteousness will be exalted. It will thrive. Look at the third woe there in verses 18 and 19, a cynical defiance. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, let him be quick. Let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and let it come that we may know it. What is that all about? Well, sin is a burden. 
and yet we hold on to our precious sins. We won't let go of them. We think God wants to steal our fun. That's the deceitfulness of it all, and it's why we have to drag our sins around with cords of falsehood. We fool ourselves. We are deceived by sin. And then we wonder why we don't wonder at the work of God. Why we're cold and indifferent and bored. Come on, if you're so real, hurry up and show me something. Oh, God's at work, is he? Let's see it. Do you hear the cynicism in these verses here? So there's this cynical, rebellious streak, almost a taunt directed at God. And again, a warning for us. Fourth woe, verse 20, perversion. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. So at that time, everything's upside down. Everything's inverted, perverted. You can imagine how the people in Isaiah's time were viewing everything upside down and backwards, right? We need to stand guard against this as well. Listen, when we need an invitation, or let me say it this way, when an invitation to meditate daily on the wisdom and the love of the best leader and lover in the universe feels like an unrealistic burden, but never an hour with Facebook or Sports Illustrated, feels that way, we might just have things upside down and backwards. Fifth woe, self-admiration, verse 21, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Like Paul wrote in the letter to the Romans, thinking they were wise, they became fools. So pride comes before the fall. Woe to those who think too highly of themselves and too little of God and his wisdom. And then finally, woe six, injustice, verses 22 to 23. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men and mixing strong drink. Kind of sounds like some of the shameful adolescent stuff that I was involved in in high school. There's nothing new under the sun. Woe to those who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. God loves justice. Do you see that? He loves the rights of the innocent and weak to be protected. So when we deprive them of it for selfish gain, woe to us. Okay, and then remember, after these woes, the therefores explain the consequences of what these people have become. So look at the final therefores, verse 24, first, disintegration. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be as rottenness, their blossom go up like dust, for they have despised the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. So they thought they were acquiring and gaining so much, and it's just going to disintegrate and burn up in their hands in a moment. So again, good reminder, good warning for us. And then finally, destruction, verses 25 to 30. Remember that back to the parable, back to verse 5, chapter 5, verse 5. And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. Okay, so what happened historically is that the Assyrians and then later the Babylonians ravaged Judah and Jerusalem. Okay, they kind of came through like a wild animal and trampled on the people of God and, and ravaged the vineyard, okay? Look at verse 25. Therefore, the anger of the Lord 
was kindled against his people because of their hard-heartedness. They wouldn't listen, even when God got creative with the prophetic drill bit parable. The anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them, and the mountains quaked, and their corpses were as refuse in the middle of the streets. For all this, his anger is not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. And then this is speaking of these superpowers like the Assyrians, the Babylonians. They're just like, the Lord can just whistle for them. Come on. He will raise a signal for nations afar off and whistle for them from the ends of the earth. And behold, quickly, speedily they come. None is weary. So think of the soldiers, kind of the marauding army coming to conquer. None is weary, none stumbles, none slumbers or sleeps, not a waistband is loose, not a sandal strap broken, their arrows are sharp, all their bows bent, their horses hooves seem like flint, and their wheels like the whirlwind, their roaring is like a lion, the young lions they roar, like young lions they roar, they growl and seize their prey, they carry it off and none can rescue, they will growl over it on that day like the growling of the sea, and if one looks to the land, behold, darkness and distress, and the light is darkened by its clouds. This is a bad situation. Very sobering. Again, can we, is one-to-one, is it something we're going to see just like this in our lifetime? No, but it's a good warning not to stick our fingers in our ears when God is speaking to us. Now, this section, this chapter is a threat of coming judgment for them. A threat of judgment can get our attention but it can't change us from rotten to sweet. So we actually need to, in a sense, kind of pull back the, the lens, wide-angle lens. We need to fast-forward a bit and see how the Lord did work to change us from rotten to sweet so that we can find our place in the story. So first, let's travel ahead in the book of Isaiah to chapter 27. So there's not much good news in chapter 5, but thankfully the story doesn't end there. So we're going to follow the story along to its conclusion where it picks up with where we live. So look at chapter 27. There is a hopeful note struck here that picks up the same themes from chapter 5 in reverse. Look at verse 2. In that day, okay, in the day of the Messiah when the Lord sends his servant to, to bring his kingdom, to set things right, in that day, a pleasant vineyard, sing of it. So here was this rotten vineyard. There's coming a day when there's going to be a pleasant vineyard. Sing of it, just like Isaiah sang back in chapter 5. I, the Lord, am its keeper. He is the keeper of this vineyard. Every moment I water it, lest anyone punish it. Like those marauding armies coming in. Oh, no, I'm going to protect my vineyard. I keep it night and day. I have no wrath toward them. This is an odd thing. Next, would that I had thorns and briars to battle. I would march against them. I would burn them up together. In other words, I'd love to show you my commitment to protect you. You see that? Verse 5 then says, or let those thorns and briars lay hold of my protection. Let them make peace with me. Let them make peace with me. 
I'll even be merciful to the outsiders. <laughs> I could even change those thorns and briars into a fruitful vine. That's pretty miraculous. So in days to come, Jacob shall take root, Israel shall blossom and put forth shoots and fill the whole world with fruit. <laughs> so that's really good news. That's really hopeful, right? Well, how's this going to happen? Well, let's travel. Keep traveling. Um, actually, in your Bible, you've got to go back. But look at the, the cry in Psalm 80. We read it as a scripture reading. We're not going to read the whole chapter again. But now think of Psalm 80 in the light of what we've looked at so far. You can read the beginning of Psalm 80, and it's just a very clear picture of just what we've already said. You know, you brought a vine out of Egypt, the people of God out of Egypt, planted them in Canaan, and it just flourished under David and Solomon, right? But then because of their sin, the Lord had to judge them. Look at their cry then. Listen to this cry in Psalm 80, verse 14. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted. And for the son, oftentimes Israel, the people of God, was referred to as a son, whom you made strong for yourself. They've burned it with fire. Okay, this is what happened historically with the Assyrians and then the Babylonians. They've cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face, but let your hand be on the man of your right hand. Who is this? The son of man whom you've made strong for yourself. Then, after you do that, after you do verse 17, then we won't turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. So did God respond to that cry? Did he hear that prayer? Did he answer that prayer? Oh, yeah. So now we get to fast forward to John 15. The people of Israel had failed to be the vine, failed to bear fruit and bless and feed the nations, fill the earth with fruit, not literal fruit. So what did God do? Well, here we could sing a song for our beloved Savior. Actually, we did. Different metaphor. There's a fountain filled with blood or all is well. The point is, he did answer this prayer in giving us his son, Jesus. God so loved the world that he sent his only son. We had borne only rotten fruit. We deserved to be thrown in the compost bin. Jesus fell to the earth like a grain of wheat dies in order to bring forth a harvest. So he died on the cross in order to pay the just penalty for all our hard-hearted rebellion. And then he rose again as the living vine and the true source of all spiritual nourishment. If we, if we get connected to him, then we can live spiritually and bear much fruit. So John 15 says, I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. Verse 5 says, I am the vine, you are the branches, my disciples. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, 
thrown into the fire and burned. If you are a branch cut off from the vine, there's no life source. Of course you're going to wither. You're just going to be wood for the fire. So we need to abide in Christ. Everything depends on how we relate to Jesus. Do you see that? So what do we want here this morning? What's the opposite of fruitfulness? Barrenness, emptiness, withering. Who wants that? Is that what you want to characterize your life? No. Do you want to live, like really live, and bear fruit that matters and lasts and will feed other needy, hungry people all around you, both literal food and spiritual food to refresh people that are, that are struggling and discouraged? Where's that fruit going to come from? Where's it, how's it going to be born in you, in you? It can only happen if you are vitally connected by faith to the vine, to Jesus. So we've got to turn from every other so-called source of life and then trust in and abide in, in Christ. Apart from him, we can do nothing. We'll bear nothing but rancid grapes. But when we abide in him and depend on him, we will bear much fruit. So the, the opposite of apart from me, you can do nothing is Philippians 4.17. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Okay? When we abide in Christ, the opposite of those six woes begin to characterize our lives. So flip all those over. Look at the bottom of the, you know, point number two there. Selfish ambition. When we abide in Christ and we, we know the provision, we drink in his grace and his love and we know his care for us. Selfish ambition, we don't have to go after it for ourselves. God's taking care of our needs. So we now have a new ambition, an ambition to, to reach out for the good of others. We have an ambition for others, for their good and their well-being. We want to feed them. We want to nourish them. We want to refresh them. How about the second one, self-indulgence? Again, oh, if the Lord is our shepherd... We, we won't want. He's going to make us lie down in green pastures. He's going to lead us beside quiet waters. He's going to restore our souls. We don't have to be indulgent apart from him. We can indulge in him. He is our delight. And when that happens, we will gladly deny ourselves our, of comforts in order to love and serve others. Do you see how the woes become fruit? Those therefores, instead of the therefores of deprivation and humiliation, Jesus came that we might have life and have it abundantly. And he exalts the humble. He poses the proud, gives grace to the humble. How about the third woe? Cynical defiance. Man, when we know the goodness of God, we deserve to be in the compost bin. And instead, he dies like a grain of wheat in the ground so that we can have life and be grafted back into him and have life. We're not cynical and defiant in God's face. There's a meekness and a humility and, and this, oh, why? why would you do this for me? There's this meek confidence in God because of his love for us and his commitment to us. Cynicism just gets melted away. The fourth woe, perversion. Everything starts to turn right side up and right side out. 
It's turned to loving what God loves and hating what God hates. He's the North Star. He's the, he's the one that orients everything for us. Fifthly, self-admiration. It's turned into God-admiration, isn't it? By the power of the gospel. We just love to sing of this God who has done all of this for us, even though we deserve woe. He took the woe on himself so that he could bless us. So self-admiration turns into God-admiration and then a desire to honor others, not belittle them. And then sixthly, injustice is turned to deep desire and persevering action for justice. We want to care for the needs of the needy, not step on their heads just like Jesus cared for our needs rather than stepping on our heads and crushing us into the dirt. And then those therefores, instead of the therefores of disintegration and destruction, Jesus came not so that we would be disintegrated, but that we would be whole. And he promises life, eternal life, not destruction. Okay? So make sure you see Isaiah 5 in the context of the whole story. And I think if we do, we are going to also want to take up our guitar (laughs) and sing of our vine of his love. And we also are going to work really hard whenever somebody else is cynical, barren, sticking their fingers in their ears, we are going to get creative for the sake of love because we really want the hardness in other people to be blown up and for them to taste the sweetness of gospel fruit. By this, in John 15, 8, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. So God wants to make us fruitful, fruitful people feeding others through faith in Jesus, abiding in him. I hope that's the kind of faith that you want, a living faith that bears much fruit. So let's ask for it as we respond to God's word by singing this last song, Living Faith. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you, the true vine, said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So Lord, I pray that that we would ask for this kind of living faith that abides in you, a humble dependence, knowing that because of who you are, it will be done for us. I pray that we would just turn away from anything that makes us barren and dry and fruitless or turns us into sour grapes. I pray that instead we would long to be sweet and fruitful. So Lord, please pour out your grace on us that we might feed the world with the sweet fruit of lives that have been changed by the power of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.